I'm Matt Cole of Fatheads Brewery, and this is Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Joe Moorfield of Pint House Pizza and Brewing, and he is here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit us at allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer.com and support journalism in the beer space. Check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Okay, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Joe Moorfield is the co-founder of Pinehouse Pizza and Brewing in beautiful Austin, Texas. The brewery opened its doors to its original brew pub in October of 2012 and has grown to four locations in the greater Austin over the past decade. Joe is currently the VP of Brewing Operations, as well as VP of Sales and Distribution for the four locations, and oversees the 22,000 barrels Pine House produces for sale in its pubs and tap room, and across its distribution footprint in Austin. And the passionate Pine House is for hop-forward ales and lagers, and is known for its Austin-style hazy IPA, Electric Jellyfish. Joe says his goal as a brewer is, and has always been, to take an agriculturally-focused approach to his beer and work closely with hop growers to source the highest quality hops and showcase them in our beer. So Joe, um, I've never met you before. I'm a big fan <laughs> of your beers. And um, I, when, when it came time to um, you know, select a brewer, um, I didn't wanna reach out to somebody that, you know, that I was friends with the industry or, or somebody that, um, you know, that, that ultimately I wanted to, to, to reach out to somebody that I could learn from, that I, um, I, I find inspiration in their beers and ultimately, um, I, I was so happy when you said that you would um, you would you would uh, join me for this interview. So thanks so much for um, for for being my guest today. It's going to be cool. Let's let's talk about beer. Sounds good, Matt. My my pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a honor that you uh, think highly of my beer. You've, you've been someone I've always looked up to in the industry, and it's it's fun to fun to finally meet you, even though it's uh, uh, virtual here. So sure. So um, one thing that kind of intrigued me um, about your brewery is. Um, your house yeast is a coal yeast, and um, you know, early on in my brewing career, um, I 
I worked at a small little brew pub for about eight years, and and my house used was also a cold yeast. Um, we used to use um, um, twenty five sixty sixty five in uh, the O two nine cold yeast. Tell me a little bit about how you came to selecting a cold yeast as your house yeast and the challenge that are associated with it, and why you find this yeast to be um, uh, ultimately the backbone of your beers. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, a lot of it for me too, is I came, um, I, I came out of the Odell system. I started my brewing career there and worked my way up and, uh, they've been running, um, you know, that hybrid, uh, ale lager Kolsch style strain for a long time. Um, and so that's, you know, professionally, that's what I got very comfortable with brewing and, you know, kind of knew the ins and outs of it. And when, um, I moved down to Austin to help start Pint House, uh kind of you know originally we we played around with some different strains and we were we were thinking about going more into the i guess you know traditional chico uh ale strain range and um the more and more we did trial batches the more i just kept wanting to go back to uh our coals what we actually use is uh y1007 which is the german ale strain from y yeast we've we've played around with uh you know honestly if there's a coal strain out there um, aside from maybe in the last year or two that's been around, we've, we've tried it. Um, we're always trying to, you know, get better and see if we can find something we're missing, but that's one, the, the one that we keep going back to with most consistency. Um, and have been very happy with it, but honestly for us, um, you know, why it was so appealing to me early on was we were a small brew pub. We had four fermenters when we first started, uh, mm -hmm. we were trying to make a few different styles. And if anybody's brewed in a small facility, they know the challenges of trying to keep yeast alive is, is honestly the biggest thing. Um, Kolsch is a very robust strain. You can store it really easily in a, in a cooler for up to a week at a time. Um, so for us, it, it allowed us to brew a variety of styles. Uh, we could manipulate um, those styles, you know, with the water profile or with the malt to kind of back our way into some of the more traditional characteristics of say a, a West coast IPA or a dry Irish stout. Um, so I do kind of find it funny because often when we publish a recipe, I always have to put the caveat that this is the yeast we use. And there's reasons why we choose the malt we do and the water profile we do. If you were to use a different yeast, it often won't work uh, quite as well. Um, you know, because of the characteristics of that yeast, that yeast doesn't produce diacetyl. Um, we've had it tested multiple times and, you know, the threshold for diastole on that yeast is uh, the high end um, is really around 50 ppb, where if you look at like a Chico strain, you know, that's what people are happy to get on the low end. Um, so we don't have some of that kind of residual sweet backbone that um, might not always be classified as diastole, but is, is inherently there in some beers. So we kind of have to back back our way into some of those flavors. But anyways, to go back to it, you know, what we we had that yeast and um, it was very versatile. It was very easy to keep alive. You know, when you're a small facility, um, I think a lot of brewers maybe get a little too uh, specific with trying to brew to style and feel like they need to have a specific yeast for everything. And and really yeast health is, is the most important. You want to have really strong fermentations, very consistent fermentation. So by going with this yeast, it, it really helped us, uh, you know, do that early on. Um, and also, you know, we weren't buying new yeast all the time. We could go eight to 10 generations very comfortably. Um, so it was, it was very helpful early on. And, you know, as we've expanded, uh, we do bring in more yeast, uh, yeast styles. I think we're running, uh, five yeasts at any given time now, but we have four facilities and we have, um, close to 60 fermentation vessels across all of those. So 
keeping yeast alive is it's actually the opposite where, you know, we tend to have way more yeast than we need at this point. So uh, it's a good problem to have. Um, so it's, it's a lot easier to run multiple strains, but, uh, but yeah, the Kolsch is, is still our house and uh, it, you know, it's, it's funny. We get a lot of new brewers in that come from other breweries and, you know, they want to go back to a Chico cause that's like what they made a West coast IPA with. And they feel like after a few batches, they, they tend to come fall in love with the Kolsch and uh, want to make, you know, whatever beer they're making with that too. So it's, uh, it's just really, it's a really easy strain to work with. It's very consistent. It's very predictable. Um, the, the lack of diacetyl is very important to me and, uh, yeah, it just seems to work. Does the lack of diacetyl, and I, I know it's extremely neutral and, and it, it works at a relatively wide range of temperatures. Um, is there, I mean, it's a, it's a powdery yeast, right? So it, it doesn't flock well. Um, yeah. is that create some, is, is, there, is, there, is there a pros and cons on, can you tell us a little bit about those challenges that are associated with, with the non-flocculent uh, yeast? For sure, yeah. The, the, the powdery aspect of the strain is, is really challenging. We've never filtered. Um, well, I take that back. We've filtered a couple of times. We have a little tiny plate and frame that we roll into the facility every once in a while that, uh, um, you know, someone... Someone gets all excited about running a filter because they've never done it before and they do it once and then they quickly put that filter back in storage. Um, but uh, yeah, Tenno's, uh, you know, German Albion or Kolsch being, being a little more powdery. Um, it was a big challenge early on, but I think it became kind of the defining characteristic of a lot of our IPAs. Um, you know, we weren't ever really concentrating on making a, um, say like a clear West Coast or uh, even like a hazy New England when we were coming up it was always our yeast always kind of came out with this little uh kind of translucent hop glow to them with a mix of like the polyphenols of the hops and and some of that yeast and, and we do get a little bit of yeast carryover um you know we're not making a half of bites in by any means but um we we tend to have maybe in the one to two um you know million cells in in some of our transfers and and we're totally fine with that we actually think that helps with some of our stability and package and and kegs so um, but yeah, getting consistent clarity is, is a big challenge if, if we're striving for that. Um, we have learned over the years that we, there's some temperatures that you can bring that yeast to in certain sequences and force that yeast to drop more quickly. Uh, but that being said, a lot of it is patience. You know, we, we don't turn our IPA super fast. We're about an 18 to 20 day on, on our IPAs, um, that's about as, as quick as you can go with that yeast. But that being said, we, you know, we brew a dry Irish stout that just because of what we've learned with that yeast and how we can get it to drop, um, you know, we can, we can turn that beer really quickly and get it clear. Um, it does work really good with Biofine um, or Clarex. Uh, we've played around with both of those over the years. Obviously both have some advantages um, kind of differently. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the powdery aspect, again, it's good for the diacetyl pickup. You know, you're not worried about that coming back in. Um, we don't, we don't see hop creep. That's one of the other things that I absolutely that was love gonna be about. One of my questions uh, was hop creep and, and, and the level of biotransformation. Cause I, I do know that it, like if that yeast is in suspension and you've got fermentation, I was wondering if it would kind of lava lamp the hops around a little bit more than what it might with the, uh, with, you know, the Chico yeah. yeast or something. Yeah. So you know, I mean, obviously biotransformation is, is, has been a hot topic for the last few years. And, um, we, we definitely get some, some biotransformation, um, aspects and we like that yeast for it. 
Um, we have found, so the one thing that's, that's very important to us is our cell count going into dry hop. We have a specific window that we target uh, when we dry hop. And we found that that is extremely important in both getting the clarity we're desiring long-term in that beer um, and also just the, the biotransformation of the hops. Um, but yeah, what we've never seen is is a big change or a big dry hop creep happening. Um, we, to give you a sense of our fermentation profile, uh, we ferment that yeast at 65 to 67 degrees. We kind of have a ramp up with it when we knock out. Um, and then uh, we um, go through fermentation. It's usually about seven, six to eight days, depending on the generation and um, you know a few other factors. And then um, we bring that yeast down to 55 degrees. Um, and that's the only way we can get enough of that yeast out that we can repitch it and get our cell count load down um, into that window, which we're, we target about 25 million cells. Um, we have a range around that. That's kind of a go, no go on the up on the high side. Um, we really, if, if we're on the low side, we probably had another issue. It's, it's very rare that we're ever below that, but we do our full harvest, uh, before we do, we dry hop anything and then we dry hop and let it free rise. And because it is so powdery, we do start to see just like a slight re-fermentation, but there's really no creep. We basically have a two day dry hop. We get the hops off of the yeast at that point or off of the beer at that point. And um, we see uh, typically one to two tenths drop in fermentation and then it stabilizes and then we do a hard crash uh, and we hold that in that hard crash for five to seven days. So manipulating those temperatures has allowed us to kind of um, figure out, you know, to deal with the powdery nature of it. But then, um, yeah, one of the things that we're really fortunate in is I hear some of the horror stories of you know, people talking about Chico or some of the English strains and dealing with hop creep that's lasting for weeks. Yeah, we're, we're one of those breweries. We're <laughs> one of those breweries, and, and, and yeah. honestly, it's not to get off 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 the subject a little bit, but it's um it's escalated for us over the years. And obviously, the hop quality group, you know, lowering kilning temperatures, <laughs> and you know, um, it's probably a different su subject, but but we have seen elevated levels of hop creep that um, you know, especially we 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 we. We've invested in some of those IQF hops, the hops that basically don't ever hit a kiln. So those are the ones that are really susceptible to hop creep. So we use Chico as our house strain, and yes, hop creep is um, it's it's a pain in the ass, and it adds time, it costs money, um, so it takes a while. We have to we have to we have to go through about a forty eight hour period without BDK and ratting AL, ALDC, and it's just been one of the more challenging things in our brewery. So uh, you're fortunate to not have to deal with that for sure. And uh, no, I, I think it's very intriguing that 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 uh, that yeast is your house yeast. Um, one thing about the, that Kolsch yeast in general, like, like, are you, are you making a Kolsch? <laughs> oh, we, yeah, it's funny. We, <laughs> I, uh, we, we've done some Kolsches over the years. Um, what's funny about German ale is I don't actually think it makes a very good Kolsch. Wow. <laughs> um, we, I prefer zero 29 if we're, if we're doing anything in, in the Kolsch sure. uh, sphere, but um, we have made some Kolsches on and off. We do have one. Uh, that's fairly consistent for us now at the at the pub level it's not something that we package or really send out to market um you know again go back to the four systems we're really fortunate we do about um 200 you know unique beers a year uh, we have a pretty big team that always has some creative ideas on what to put into the into the tank so um we're able to experiment a lot um but yeah we, we we've never done a course very consistently we did when we were first doing our pilsner 
uh, our magical pills, which is a, a one of our core beers at this point. We were fermenting that with a Kolsch yeast. Um, we just had two locations at the time. We were still having a little bit of trouble justifying having um, two or three full-time strains. Uh, actually, the first secondary strain that we've ever kept in-house is a Mexican lager. We do a Mexican lager through the summer months. Um, so that was kind of our first uh, you know, strain that we would keep. Um, fortunately, down here in Austin, we have some really good lager producers, and I'm pretty good friends with a number of them. Um, and so early days, it was always easy to, uh, you know, hit up my friend Tim out at Real Ale or uh, you know, ABGV guys or, you know, borrow some yeast if if we needed it in a pinch. So, um, you know, that was, you know, obviously one of the cool things of the industry and, and really nice having the, the lager producers here in town, being able to lean on them. Um, you know, since we've we've moved, like we, we run a consistent lager strain and we actually started running a ALDC Chico um in our west coast we have a new west coast ipa out uh, like a modern west coast we're calling it and uh we are running a chico for the first time and um it's been a good mental flex for the brewers they're having to relearn a lot of processes and um you know keeping them on their toes in the cellar great all right well i think we're going to take a break um yeah we're going to take a short break for a message and then come back uh for some more conversation with joe, Mo joe morfeld of uh pine house brewing First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Okay, we're back with Joe Morfeld, and we want to talk a little bit about sustainability. Tell me about sustainability and how it affects your brewery and uh, hop quality and all those things. Um, I'd like to learn more about sustainability and what you guys do in Austin. Yeah, Austin's obviously a very uh, uh, forward-thinking city, and, you know, we we try to really work uh, as much as we can on, um, you know, especially our water usage, you know, I think everywhere it's water is becoming a, a bigger uh, issue. We, we're very fortunate to have good water here, but um, it's, you know, it's, it seems like it's more scarce every year. So work a lot on that. Uh, being the size we are, we don't have the ability to get into a lot of like bigger, um, you know, like recovery systems or things like that, but we do work really hard to, uh, tighten up our processes in a way that we are not, you know, using any kind of um, well, excesses, especially in the water thing. 
Um, you know, being a restaurant, the biggest thing is on the food side. We we do a lot with uh, like on the composting side. We have a our one of our farmers that we work with uh, that picks up. We have actually three farmers that pick up grain. Uh, some of them also pick up compost from the the restaurant side um, that they you know are able to feed to some of their uh, their um, animals on their property. Obviously, we don't want uh, you know pigs eating pork or anything like that. Clearly, but uh, but yeah, we we you know we work on that. And the restaurant side is probably the biggest the biggest part of where we we spend a lot of effort on that. Um, yeah, when it comes to like on the raw material side and you know, the brewing side. Um, I think one of the things I've been very interested in is, uh, especially like with the, with what we're breeding or what, you know, what we're supporting on the breeding side is making sure that we're, we're focusing on sustainable hops long-term. I've had some really good conversations with Jason Peralt over the last couple of years and looking at some of these new varieties that are coming out. Um, you know, when you look at a hop like Centennial, which you know, every year they talk about, well, it's, you know, it's a tough year for Centennial because it's X amount of bales per acre. And, you know, and at some point it's like the amount of inputs to make that hop happen, get harder and harder to justify, uh, you know, with, with the real, you know, as we face climate change and, you know, drier, um, drier, uh, well, summers and, you know, hotter growing season. So, you know, like 682 for, from HBC, when you look at something like that, that can yield uh, significant bales per acre or 1312 or 1321 from CLS, you know, when you start to look at what those bales per acre can be, I think it becomes very significant on what we're choosing as brewers and the impact we can have. Um, and I think that, you know, that can go a long ways down too. I know you mentioned the IQF hops earlier. Uh, we do a lot of fresh hops. And when Yakima Chief started working on this process, you know, one of the things that I told them is, the hardest thing when we're having to overnight fresh hops from the valley, I mean, it's a huge carbon footprint, right? You're putting them on a plane, you're sending them overnight. Uh, as fun as that is to brew those beers, you know, you do feel a little bad that we're having to spend all that energy and carbon to get them to Austin, Texas to, to brew with them. So going into the fresh frozen, it takes a lot of that impact off of it. Um, and I know they're doing some some really cool studies on the carbon impact of you know, like how they're shipping and, and, you know, how some of this is going to, you know, help that whole process. So that part's really exciting to me. And it's something that, um, you know, we're, we're going to continue to champion and focus on some interesting conversations with some of the Southern hemisphere growers and, you know, the, the, they're working hard too. I think everybody's really thinking, how can we get some of these, these products to the end users as efficiently as possible, you know? I know there's a lot of research in Germany. I think the Hall Institute was doing some things on creating varietals that were more drought resistant because I was in Germany last summer. And I mean, in, in Bavaria, the, the, the whole Hollertaler area just looked absolutely miserable, you know, um, and then obviously there's, you know, they had terrible yields and, and obviously the oils, some of the stuff we're seeing is, you know, in the low ones, you know, as far as uh, alpha acids and things like that. So is that some of the stuff that is is happening, you think, in 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 the Pacific Northwest? They're trying to, um, I'm not going to say, you know, they're, they're basically, um, you know, trying to make uh, hops more resi resilient. Is that, could I use that word? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's the case. I think resilient, more sustainable, I guess more just, um, yeah, more sustainable. Uh, you know, if you think of 
agriculture is it's an x amount of inputs to get a certain output and if you're able to put in less inputs whether that's water you know chemicals uh diesel and the tractors to be out there driving through the field um to get the same output you know you're you're honestly at the end of the day you're better off for the environment right because all those inputs are are reduced so those have been some of the fun conversations i feel like having with you know like with again with jason you know he's very conscious of that and and he's he's told me that it's really changed how he's thought about the breeding program in a lot of ways you know it's like i think for a long time you know if you breed purely for a specific ergonomics or you breed specifically for a aroma or flavor profile that we're looking for as brewers um you know it's it's easy and fun but then yeah you hear stories about like uh well, I was talking to some New Zealand farmers about Rawaka and when you know when they're talking about getting two bales per acre uh on baby yards I mean that's that's a really tough uh yield to to have moving forward you know just in it's an awesome hop and you know so it's figuring out is there is there options to make that more sustainable you know you have less inputs to get a higher output and then I think we as brewers you know we need to be very conscious of how we're using those and making sure that we're maximizing the potential of all of those do, do do you think the ultimately that this is leading to a higher quality of hop yeah I think so I think um I mean, I think there's other things that go into the quality aspect, you know, how we're kilning, how we're treating them on the farm, um, you know, what we're, what the, what, you know, especially with us, with the hop quality group, you know, is what we're looking at farmers to make sure that they're focusing on. Um, but I mean, if a hop grows better with, you know, in the environment that's planted, it's going to be a higher quality. We're not trying to force something, force the square peg in the round hole idea, you know. I mean, you could probably speak to it more on the German side. I haven't been over there. Uh, we don't use a ton of German hops at this point. We're kind of getting into it more as we're building our lager program. But yeah, you, you hear about over there, like, you know, just what you're saying with some of the oil contents. And I mean, we saw with alphas this year. Uh, I mean, that's it's going to be a lower quality hop, right? Yeah, for sure. Sure. So since we kind of like diverted our way into hops a little bit, let's talk a little bit about hop selection and how your team goes about. I know that's a big thing. It's a big thing for us. I think we both have um, um, an understanding of, of the process, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about you, you your guys' um, and your team's, um, how you guys go about selecting hops and, and do you have particular growers that you gravitate towards and do you go in blind and um you know all these kind of things um i'd like to learn a little bit more about how you guys go about hop selection for sure yeah i thought this was fun when you and i kind of spoke about this briefly uh we, we kind of have the almost exact opposite approach which i thought was really interesting and and kind of cool um it definitely shows that there's multiple ways to approach this and and make really good happy beers so um yeah our approach is we um uh, we tend to be very relationship driven with our farmers. Um, I've spent a little over a decade traveling back and forth between the, the Pacific Northwest. So I've gotten some pretty good relationships with uh, some farms up there and value those relationships a lot. And I've been watching how they've, you know, put in uh, infrastructure into their farms, how they treat their employees. Um, you know, we want some of, we want the values that we're purchasing our raw materials from to as much as they can align with what our company's values are too. 
So I think we look at that as, as something that's important to us. Um, so we, we head up to the, we, we, you know, go up there for selection. We select uh, on-site in Yakima. Um, we, we have a small group. Uh, uh, two of the guys have basically been up with me for the last, well, if you take 2020 out of it, you know, basically the last seven to eight years we've been selecting together. So we have a pretty good shared um, language that we use. And then um, our other other guy that's joined us, he's been up with us about five years. So uh, we have a pretty tight team. Uh, we usually try to bring in one or two additional uh, kind of voices every year, like someone new that we rotate in, just to you know, just to kind of get a sense of like maybe we're we're missing something, maybe we're kind of getting blind to a note, or you know, they might have a exceptionally good uh, palette for a certain hop that uh, we don't. So. Um, you know, I'm the first one to admit I, I struggle with mosaic more than I struggle with any other hop in the selection process. Um, but then when it comes to Simcoe, I think we're, we've been very locked in over the years. So, um, so it's good to bring in those voices. So we head up every year. Um, we sort of request uh, some of the same farms. Um, we've we've found that we do have um, whether you want to call it a terroir or regionality that we do like in our beer. Um, and we've, you know, we've selected it blind. Sometimes we've, you know, requested certain farms, you know, from certain parts of the Valley. And we found that, you know, it just hits the profile that we're looking for. Um, and so I would say we're kind of a partial blind selector. Um, we do like to be able to smell some outliers. I also, you know, spend time just kind of driving around the Valley. I try to check out, you know, at least a few new farms every year and, try to see their operation and, you know, go sell, smell some hops on the drying floor and um, get a sense for what they're doing and, and try to understand, you know, more, uh, build more relationships, understand more what's going on in the Valley. Um, and then I guess the other thing, you know, like I said, we kind of selected in a semi-blind where I, I do like to, before we make our final decision, I will, uh, you know, look at the farm and, and make sure it's a farm that um, we, we trust. Um, we have been burned in the past a couple of times where we've selected purely blind. And um, this was a number of years ago. And I think a lot of the hop, uh, like the developments that a lot of the hop farmers have made as far as like food safety and um, some of their drying and bailing techniques and everything have gotten so much better. But we had it where, you know, we had a lot of, it ended up being a lot of debris in, in the hops and we had some some issues with it. And so, Although it was smelled really good on the table, it didn't translate very well into the final product. And so that's where I look at that relationship element is knowing, you know, the farm practices and what they're doing to mitigate some of those things and to ensure high quality long-term downstream for us as brewers uh, means a lot to us. So, um, yeah, we, we look at the table samples and then at the end, um, you know, there's, there's definitely some times where we've, you know, had a rub that we thought was just phenomenal, but weren't familiar with that farm um, and it, it went for maybe our second choice that we thought was exceptional as well. And I use the, I try to use that as an opportunity to uh, find that farm out next year and, and maybe go visit them and start to learn who they are. Cause then you can see that they're growing really good hops and they could be a potential candidate for the future. Gotcha. That's cool. Yeah. So we kind of do it a little bit. We 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 go completely in like not knowing you know, who grew it, um, and the an analytics, we do look at alpha acid, I believe, because there's some economics obviously involved in that, but I think that's, um, 
it's interesting how you guys, you know, it looks like you, you do your homework and something similar happened to us where we selected a hop and, um, and then we went out to the farm and, and, you know, that definitely some of the, the kilning and, um, was very outdated and this, the, the, the hop tended to oxidize uh, much faster than um, some of these more elite farms. So we, we we learned the hard way there as well. So it is important to to, to make sure that you're working with a facility that is state of the art and um, has good throughput, right? It's very important and their stuff isn't hanging too long and, you know, decaying, so to speak. Uh, what about some new varietals? And, you know, I, I, I think you're one of those guys that like, challenges yourself to get better and, and diversify your beers. Um, tell me about how you, how you go about that. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think probably sometime to, uh, to the point where my uh, director of, of quality, he, he makes fun of me for using the term trials. Cause I feel like every couple of days I'm talking about, we're going to do a new trial with, you know, this hop in place of this. It's, um, <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's kind of a, it's be, kind of become a running joke of like each week, what, what the new trials are going to be. So, uh, but yeah, it is something that's very important to me. And obviously, you know, beer is an agricultural product and stuff is always changing and there's always new things that are exciting. And um, we've been, uh, well, as we've grown too, you know, we're trying to make our beers more consistent. So we're diversifying some of the hops in the beer to, um, you know, hopefully, like as we see yearly changes, they're less um, noticeable. Um, but yeah, we've been working really hard to where we see an opportunity, like, and it goes back to some of the sustainability of if hops. Like, if there's a hop that legitimately looks like it's going to um, have a lot better agronomics long term than something we had in there, uh, I think that means a couple of things. In my head, it means the farmer's probably going to prioritize it. So then that's going to get prioritized in a pick window going to be processed a little bit better um it might offer a little more security long term for us uh in that beer um i think in all honesty the thing that we've been most excited about recently is the stuff coming out of the southern hemisphere you know specifically in new zealand um, but we do use a lot of australian we're, we're a really big galaxy user that's in our flagship electric jellyfish um but new zealand has been it's been super exciting you know i think five years ago it was hard to even get anything from them in quantity and you didn't know what you're getting. And it was kind of a, a bit of a, a black box. You know, you didn't know much about the farms. You didn't know um, too much of anything down there. You know, I know some people have been down there. I wasn't fortunate enough to go down there, but um, you know, it felt like there was like a little bit going on, a little bit understood. And I feel like in the last year or two, there's been so much information coming forward to us about uh, like the, um, what's being grown down there, all the differences in the farms, all the, the terroir differences, how significant those can be. Um, and so we've had a lot of fun learning about those and then bringing those in and bringing them into some of the different uh, core recipes. So, um, you know, we have a beer called Training Vines that used to be some Coast Citra Mosaic. Uh, the combo works, shockingly. Um, but it's uh, had Motueke in it now for almost two and a half years. Um, because we thought it just gave a nice little element. So it, it kept that beer within its profile, but it's, it's keeps kind of pushing it forward. We've started adding a little bit of Nelson Sovin to, um, one of our kind of longstanding West coast IPAs, green battles, um, because it really plays off of that mosaic element. So, um, yeah, when it comes to new hops, like if we can find stuff that we feel like plays really nicely and elevates or moves that forward, 
we really love to try to integrate it and, and kind of always keep evolving those recipes. We're definitely very much, we look at the beer as what the identity of the beer, uh, what we see it is and not the recipe on a piece of paper because it changes so much for us. We're always trying to evolve it and make it better. And when you do that, do you, because uh, we, we, we're, we're constantly, I guess, in the pursuit of perfection as well. And we're, you know, um, we make some changes to our beer, but if we do, we do very subtle changes. Um, is that, is that how you guys kind of roll? Do you, are you plugging in some new stuff here and there subtly? So the consumer really doesn't notice it, but, and then are you, um, you know, kind of using that as a control and putting it through taste panels and, 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 and that kind of approach. And sometimes Absolutely. it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we, you know, again, being, being that we're a brew pub, you know, first and foremost, we have such a great, you know, quick sounding panel with all the customers coming in every day. So, you know, we make a change to a beer over the bar, we're going to get immediate feedback, you know, and we, we have such loyal customers. I mean, we'll, we're very honest and open with them. We're like, Hey, we're trying this and this, what do you think? Um, and so it's really good feedback. I always joke, you know, no one ever complains if a beer gets better. Uh, it's only <laughs> if it gets worse, you know, like changing a beer customers, um, it's the beers that haven't evolved and changed. I think customers always think haven't, uh, when I was in brewing school, I think one of the, um, um, most interesting things that I learned was it was from a, a long-term um, Anheuser-Busch sensory specialist. He talked about how they worked so hard with, you know, Budweiser to match the flavor that people thought it was, um, you know, and, and drive that beer, uh, you know, always changing it to, to, you know, basically make it make people think this is what Budweiser really is. And um, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing. Like we've, you know, we, we change IBUs in beers, we change dry hopping rates, you know, like, um, we, I mean, obviously the biggest trend lately is in IPAs. They're a lot lighter in color than they ever have been. Sure. Um, you know, our, our West coast IPA pretty much looks like a Pilsner at this point. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of that evolution. And then, um, we, with our newest facility, we've invested in a full sensory program that so we have a sensory uh, specialist on hand that, uh, she, leads through triangle tests and you know we'll pull in people from all over the organization and and get their sense you know see if they can pick out liars see if they can identify uh you know preferences on on hedonic testing and so it's it's been really good having that it's probably helped us uh keep from drifting i think early on when it was just me i was probably taking kind of broad swings at things and we were changing things a little too much and we've gotten a lot more strategic and and as you know like we're always looking ahead you know, once we have a new crop we of hops, for example, we start putting that into the beer to see what it's changing and see how we need to uh, be adjusting the recipe to make sure that we're not swinging too far in those crop year shifts and everything. So uh, interesting thing, I guess, it, you use a coal sheast, you don't use much crystal malt. I'm assuming your beers are relatively dry, correct? Right? Because They're I mean, pretty, Kolsch is a, a pretty, pretty good attenuating yeast. Um, so how do you find um, how do you get that body to balance out? Um, is it a higher mash temperature? Tell me a little bit about those things, uh, how you get the desired results. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Cause that is, that is like when I said that earlier about our recipes, if you took a look at our recipes or our process, um, you have to always be very mindful that we are working with, uh, a cold sheast. Um, so yeah, what we do, uh, we do a lot with mash temperature. 
we do we do add probably a lot more, especially like in our electric jellyfish or our training bands, which are um, hazy IPAs. But if you were to have those next to, um, say, like the more traditional um, New England IPAs, it's a much drier hazy IPA. Sure. Um, it's but it also fits the Austin climate. I mean, it's very hot here, so you can't have a, a really res- residually sweet beer. Um, so. Uh, so we do, our beers do finish a little bit drier. Uh, we know that it's something that, you know, we so appreciate. What, what are, are we talking two, 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 five, uh, what, what's, what's, uh, what's, what's, so a, what's we, a good ter- ter- terminal gravity for your brewery? Yeah. So like in, in our hate, in our hazies, we are in that, uh, three to four range, depending on recipe, three, three, two to three, five is pretty typical to keep enough residual body that it still drinks, um, full, like you want a hazy. In our West Coast, yeah, we're down in that two, two to two five. But the thing that's deceiving with Kolsch is because we don't have that um, kind of that little bit of subtle back end diacetyl character, um, it's going to be perceived drier than like a Chico Al finishing at one. I've had a lot of conversations with uh, my friend Ben up at uh, Breakside about this. And he, he actually did a bunch of tests and ran through their labs to look at PPB and how it, you know, PPB of diacetyl and how that was perceived sensory-wise, Chico versus Kolsch. And, you know, we found basically you have to be a Play-Doh or a Play-Doh and a half higher with Kolsch finishing to have it drink the same dryness as like uh, a Chico beer. So so we have to add a lot more kind of uh, malt character or like, you know, ferment. Uh, we, we mash pretty high on a lot of things. We're in that 154, 155 a lot of times. Um, we're adding a lot more like carapils or carafones, um, okay. flake dose, flake barley. So we're trying to build body in different ways. Gotcha. That's cool. And then we do a lot with our waters. So Austin's water is, is great, but it's a very strange water. It's it's temporary hard. So it's high bicarbonate, but low minerals overall. And so it kind of turns soft as soon as it gets you know over 180 for a period of time. And so we actually are working with a pretty soft water, which is, is nice, but we can, we can really help that mouthfeel a lot with, you know, our chloride and sulfate additions. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, okay. So I saw on your website, I'm a barbecue guy, right? I compete on a KCBS <laughs> circuit. Um, I saw that you have a, um, a product called Smoky Denmark. Tell me a little bit about Smoky Denmark. Yeah, Smoky Denmark's a local purveyor here. Um, they we get a lot of our our meats from them. Um, we've been working with them from day one. Um, you know, being on the food side, I don't know as much about them, but I know their products are delicious, and and they're based here in Austin, which is pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, we get a lot of our. You know, we try to source as much as we can. Um, you know, local, organic. Uh, and Austin's pretty good for that. We have we have some good suppliers, and and they're one that, like I said, we've been working with since basically day one, um, based right here in Austin. Very cool. How about uh, tell me a little bit about some influential breweries for you, um, and how have they affected or influenced your brewing? Um, and and you know, I just I'm I'm curious who you lean on when uh when you have questions because you mentioned ben from breakside you know i he's one of those guys i reach out to when i have anything that you know mitch obviously you know some guys like that so tell me about some influential people in the industry and and um and and some influencers for you for sure well yeah i mean 
it's uh you i in all honesty like uh, your guys's headhunter was was definitely a west coast ipa that was was very influential when we were when we were working on some recipes for pine house early on um but it's yeah if you if you think of like where a lot of my big influences come from odell um you know we were doing uh like a little bit softer bitterness ipa for a long time really focusing on flavor and aroma and uh one of the breweries i found out about that um, i was actually having a conversation with kelsey from highland or from north park uh this past weekend at firestone walker and um we we were both it's funny because we were talking about our biggest influence on how we direct our ipas now and and we were both talking about how much alpine uh influenced us back in the day um you know, I remember going uh, to their brewery back in, I think it was 2011, and um, just the the flavor and aroma that they were able to get out of their beers without the traditional bitterness and, you know, how crisp and dry and wonderful those were. So that was like, if you think of like where my IPA program was initially driven, it was a lot of that kind of Colorado, uh, even New Mexico kind of IPA, which was a little bit less bitter than the, you know, the really um, sulfate driven West Coast. But then Alpine was the big one, um, and then from I mean, that, for you know, me, for me as well. That's which is cool. I I, I love to hear yeah, that. That's really awesome. I think you know. I think a lot of brewers who are making really good IPAs. I it'd be, I'd be shocked if they didn't put Alpine as, especially in kind of this era. Uh, Alpine is one of the of the ones that was really inspirational early on. Um, but yeah, what's what's really cool is we've I got kind of a little group of buddies that we. Uh, we do some fun projects together. We, we started brewing each other's beer and doing this, these releases. Um, it started during the pandemic. Uh, so it's uh, Tim over at Cellar Maker, Steve at Cloudburst, um, Evan at Green Cheek, Bob at Highland Park and uh, JC at Alvarado street. And um, we've just always kind of enjoyed each other's beers and uh, have worked with each other, you know, uh, over the years. And, during the pandemic, we, um, you know, we, it was hard to travel clearly and it was hard to do collaboration. So actually Tim had this idea. He's like, what if we all brew a uh, cellar maker pale ale and sell it, you know, out of our doors and in our market. So we did it and it was really fun. And then that turned into um, Bob over at Highland Park having us all brew Timbo, which is probably the most influential beer that we've uh, had recently. We, we've really gone down the West coast pills train. Uh, we love it. It's like all we want to brew right now. Um, so we're having a ton of fun with 3470 and a ton of hops and rice and it's so outside of any of these boxes and it's just what we want to drink, especially it's going to be a hundred degrees this weekend here. So, so I'm going to want to drink. Sounds delicious. Um, I can't wait to try that one. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that beer. I, I, yeah, it just, it just won a gold, right? At the GABF? Or, uh, I mean, the World beer yeah. Our West Coast Pills just took a silver at World Beer Cup. Um, okay. And uh we we have a few of them now but that particular one yeah it took silver um that one's called lasso we're actually we're we're changing the name we didn't realize that great divide had that name so uh brian was nice enough to send me a very nice very polite email and uh, told him we'll you know we'll uh we'll change the name clearly don't want to step on any toes so um uh but yeah that that one it's gonna still be around just under a different name but yeah what we do with that is it's very much like a west coast ipa uh but fermented with lager yeast um, we do use some noble hops in the kettle side on the hot side. Um, I think there's some kind of cool theories to what the noble hops can contribute. Um, the lower alpha acid, you're getting some of that polyphenol contribution because you're using them in higher amounts. Um, and then, yeah, with that, uh, much like Kolsch, 3470 is very sulfur driven. I think there's a sulfur lift on those beers. 
Uh, I think it adds a lot to package stability. So, you know, when we compare how well these beers hold up um, compared to stuff that we're fermenting in that realm with like our Chico ale, uh, we see almost like double the shelf life. Um, and they just, they just seem to be very uh, bright for a long period of time. Um, and then we've been doing a lot with, uh, we'll add rice in there. I know um, Vinny's been talking about it a lot lately about, you know, rice doesn't have fan. Fan can contribute to uh, faster degradation in beer. So if you can remove more fan from your final product, maybe it's going to last longer. Um, so we've, we've been, we've been having a lot of fun with that. And uh, yeah, it's funny. It's like all the, all the, every time we put something new trial beer in there, it's, it's got rice, it's got 3470, it's got a mix of Noble and uh, Pack Northwest. And it's usually got just a ton of uh, Pack Northwest and Southern Hemisphere in the dry hop. Wow. So is there, from a hopping standpoint, you obviously have to go a little leaner, correct? Um, and, and, you know, cause I, I, I'm assuming that this traditionally they're very light in body. So, you know, obviously body is going to give balance. And so that, that, that's a, that's a tough balance. So is there anything you do? And I'm not trying to pull some trade secrets. I'd ultimately, I want to make something like this. Um, so what, 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 what kind of tips could you give us to, um, you know, make a really good hoppy pilsner west coast pilsner for sure um yeah so the uh well yeah you do have to be more delicate with the hops clearly um you know if you look at the hopping rate between this and say like our you know west coast or our um sorry our like new new england or hazy ipas you know we are a much lower we're probably in that three pound per barrel versus like electric jellyfish electric jellyfish for us is uh, a little over five and a half pounds per barrel. Um, I think one of the things that happens when you are using the nobles in the uh, kettle is you're getting some of that uh, polyphenol because you're, you're adding at a little bit higher rate. Um, and that seems to actually help a lot with, um, with some of that perceived body and helps keep the beer lean, but it, uh, I guess it, you know, it doesn't feel like thin, which I think can happen when you add like really big hop loads to some of that stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, for us, I think the biggest trick is, you know, it's uh, we tend to mix in, a, we tend to do a mixed uh, malt bill of like a two row and a pills. So you're, you know, not just a hundred percent pills, you're adding a little bit back. Um, if we're adding rice, we might be a little higher percentage of two row. Um Carafoam is is very important in there to give it just that a little bit of uh, a little bit extra body. Um, we're fermenting uh, 3470 is is typically the yeast that we like to use in there, um, and then most of the time because of the the way the lager fermentations are, we really like to do two step dry hopping. So we'll uh, we'll do our first dry hop, um, let it go for a couple of days, we'll drop and then do a second dry hop. Um, so that, that seems to, to work really well with the lager strain, um, and it helps with any kind of potential hop creep in there. And since you mentioned a little bit about dry hopping, um, tell me a little bit about how long, like we're, we're kind of an unusual brewery. I, I have conversations with guys where, you know, 
Um, honestly, I, I, I've had some arguments with Jason Oliver from Devil's Backbone about, you know, you know, AB says, you know, and you, you know, you don't get anything out of more out of a dry hop after 48 hours or, you know, um, we usually dry hop around seven days with some rousing in between at warmer temperatures. Um, and I know you share a lot of your knowledge and stuff like that with craft beer and, and, and all about beer and, and all these publications. I've seen some of your recipes. Tell me a little bit about how you go about um, uh, dry hopping to maximize um, aroma and flavor. Pills and, and providing a little bit more backbone to that beer so that the beer doesn't come off you know, too overhopped and undrinkable. Um, so that's that's kind of where we we see a little bit of difference in in some of that hopping rate. Are you guys um we we become a little more heavily invested in cryo are are do you guys um also use a lot of cryo and are there any other um unique unique hop pro products um you know we're we've been playing around with some horrible stuff um salvo and other things um is your brewery experimenting with stuff like that and um just curious if you're you know, trying to, we're, you know, our, we're, we're, we're looking for the big flavor, but we're also trying to, to, to chase efficiencies a little bit, you know. For sure. Yeah. We're, we're definitely starting to explore a lot more with that. Uh, cryo has been a, a thing that we've have, we've been using a lot for quite a while. We were one of the kind of early uh, adopters of that. We were doing some of the trials for YCH back in the day when, before it was pelletized and it was really hard to work with. Um, yeah. Yeah. The lupulin <laughs> powder, right? Yeah. Uh, this kind of would float, stick to the side of the whirlpool. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was that was challenging uh, for sure. But um, yeah, we're starting to play around a little bit more with some of the the um, horrible and flowables and some of the extracts. Uh, you know, I think the technology is coming a long way. I assume a lot of it's coming out of the probably out of the cannabis industry. Um, we're seeing some really cool distilled products. Uh, we've been playing around with um, one of the products from Freestyle. Uh, farms um, that's doing some like hop distillation with their Motueka, which has been just phenomenal. Um, so there's some, there's some pretty cool stuff. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, we're always trying to look for, you know, how can we get more flavor? How can we get more aroma? Uh, efficiency is, is becoming a lot more important as we're getting bigger and our batch sizes are getting bigger. Um, but, you know, one the, the product that I'm probably most excited about in all honesty is, is really the, uh, the IQF um, 301 that's been coming out of YCH, you know, the, the fresh frozen cryo pellets are, they're really cool. And uh, um, you know, if you look at a fresh hop beer and you're looking for that character, um, our yields are significantly better, which is pretty awesome. And uh, I think you uh, won something at world beer cup with uh, I'm assuming a, a fresh frozen beer in the experimental. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah, I think we uh, yeah. Congrats on that. With, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, um, Will, our pilot brewer, put that together. He did a great job. Um, yeah, so that's that's we're pretty heavily invested in. We we're, we're um, uh, we use a whole a lot of whole flour, so we have a big, pretty big hop back, and um, it's sized basically for to handle our largest loads of fresh hops. Um, so yeah, so I, I'd say about twenty some percent of what we purchase is all whole flour. So we, we, we heat exchange from the kettle to the whirlpool. And then, um, and then uh, some of our stuff have, have that IQF stuff, but again, uh, that stuff is, it, it contributes to hop creep a lot. So, you know, yeah, as much as I love yeah. it, it, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's, uh, you know, so 
anyway, I hate hop creep. And uh, years ago, when people would talk about hop creep, I'd oh, what's hop creep, you know? And uh, boy, it caught up with us, um, you know. So, but that's life, you know. And then and, and it makes you a better brewer, and you kind of try to navigate through that stuff. But yeah, for sure, for sure. What uh, yeah. what's us uh, um, outside of the IQF? What's the stuff that you're most excited about right now? Oh, we we played around with a, a new product from YCH called Simcoe Bomb. I don't know if you know, I don't, and I don't want to open up a can of worms, but um, it's very small production of it. And then somehow they're able to separate the essential oils from the ISA out. And, it, you know, it could be like you mentioned from a cannabis driven kind of stuff, that technology. So um, we did a trial with it and it produced like an amazingly clean hop flavor. Um but it, it, it faded. It, it lacked the polyphenol, like you were mentioning earlier, and it did not have good stability. Uh, when I say stability, um, just the hops, um, they, they faded. Um, they faded faster, you know. So for us, um, you know, some of the IQF, some of the horrible stuff the salvo and this and that a lot of it's gone in the whirlpool we haven't done a lot with the oils now you mentioned the oils um would you dry hop with some of these oils and have you been dry hopping we have never tried anything like that and 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 i i just wonder um i i'm sure from an efficiency standpoint it's great have you have you tried and and played around with that we haven't yet um we've been working with a couple of products that uh i guess we have some non-disclosures on so i probably can't mention the names or numbers but uh they're they're pretty fun to work with and you know they're i think they're creeping towards that realm of trying to be in the dry hop but um we've actually seen some of the same stuff that you're talking about with like the the simcoe bomb where um we really like it initially but it doesn't seem to have that lasting impact that that we like from i, I think there's like a there's gonna be there's always gonna be a balance of uh, you know, some you're gonna need some type of either whole cone or T90, the cryo. You know, I think I think some of the best IPAs out there being produced right now are using some combination of everything available. Absolutely. Um, I wish we had a ability to work with whole cone more. We we do it. We probably do a half a dozen batches a year where we go a little more whole, whole cone heavy. But you know, we started off in a tiny footprint in a small brew pub, and so you know, just working with whole cone was really, really tough. Um, so we've never really engineered any of our subsequent brew houses to, to work with it that efficiently either. So, um, it is something that's like, it's always kind of that fun day when we do it. Uh, but since it's not engineered to do that, it's also kind of, a kind of a rough day for, for us too. So, um, I do love it. I, I wish we could use it more, but, um, yeah, we, we're, we're very T90 and cryo heavy and, we're, we're getting into that realm of, of uh, some of the flowables. But then um, to that point, I think, you know, what we found is by layering in multiple dry hops or dry hopping times, we're able to extract at different rates and get more from some of these products and just continue to drive that flavor and aroma up. Yeah. Very cool. So if you had to take one hop to battle, only one <laughs> for all styles, What's it going to be? Simcoe. <laughs> Simcoe. No, no question. All I love right. that I'm right, hop. I'm right with you there. <laughs> Simcoe is my favorite hop. Uh, I absolutely love it. Um, I mean, we've, we've brewed some great lagers with it. We've brewed Pale Ales, IPAs. I still think, you know, Russian Rivers, 
uh, awesome copier is is one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, it's row row two hill row, 56, row, right? row two hill fifty six. Yeah. A, I mean, uh, it, the, the, the hop about died, right? I mean, it was just yeah. A, it was abandoned, which is pretty amazing that that where it is today, you know. What yep. about um, harvest windows on Simcoe? I noticed like early it tends to be a little bit more tropical, and um, then later it seems to get more maybe more pine and a little bit more. I don't say dank, but more or less slight onion, garlic. Is there a window that you prefer? And um, yeah, absolutely. We are very much like an early to mid pick window. Um, and we really like the Moxie Simcoe. We th I think there's a little bit different, uh, again, you know, some farmers don't like to use the term terroir. Uh, I think there's a difference in kind of some of the stuff in Moxie versus Toppenish or Lower Valley, but, um, yeah, we tend to be early to mid. I, uh, when we go to select the, the notes that we're looking for are, we want to be fresh cut ruby red grapefruit mixed with a little bit of that uh, caddy aroma that you would find in like a Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro. So that's kind of what we're looking for. We don't want it to drive too. Um, we definitely don't want any OG in there. Um, I think if, if one of our faults, if anything, during selection is we, we tend to maybe select a little too clean on a lot of our hops and maybe should look for a little bit more. Um, what do you mean by that? Kind of. What do you mean by uh, clean? Well, it kind of mentioned it earlier. We've struggled with mosaic over the years. Um, I, I, it's one of the, the harder ones for me to select um, because it can get pretty, you know, onion, garlic, dank on the table, um, which is kind of puts me off, but it translates really well in the beer. But then it's hard for me to do that rub and then go, well, this is what I want, you know, knowing it's going to be that in the beer. Um, so we tend to err on the little bit earlier pick window on a lot of our varieties. Uh, which tend to be more fruit forward. Um, you know, Mosaic, we're looking for that like very bright blueberry, mint, um, orange peel, um, citra, we're always looking for that like intense mango, sweet stone fruit. Um, so yeah, we, when I say like maybe too clean, we, we tend to maybe go a little bit on the earlier pick window on a lot of varieties. Is there um, a particular hop that is gained in popularity, but you don't really like it? For me, um, I'm not a big Sabro guy. I just, I, <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm coconut and suntan lotion all, all the way through. And I just can't, it, it just, it's almost offensive to me. Tell me a little bit about a, a, a hop that maybe um, is gained popularity, but, but not, not, not for Joe. Yeah, man, that's, I mean, Sabro is kind of an easy one. It's a bit of a punching bag for a lot of brewers. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I mean, that's probably the most, I, I, it's even hard to say that it's gained popularity. I think it kind of went through a little bit of an up and down. Um, I would say almost the flip side of that one hop that I wish was more popular that, you know, I really love that never really hit its stride is, is Laurel. I really love Laurel. Um, especially when paired with uh, like mosaic and, you know, I think kind of got marketed as a lager hop. I think it actually makes really nice IPA or mm -hmm. pale ales. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard with hops, especially more recently, you know, I think as the breeding programs have been pushing them. So I don't want to say quickly, because I know it's still a long process, but I think we're, we're, we're seeing for the first time as the baby fields, um, how big of a difference, 
you know, year one of being a name to year three, uh, it, it's getting harder and harder to really get excited about um, maybe that next new hop because we just don't know what it's going to be in two or three years. And sure. um, we've, we've had, we've struggled with that a little bit internally. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I'd probably say Sabro and Talus. Those are probably my two that I'm, again, I just not into that, that it's so dominant, you know, you can use 5% in there and it's, it's too much. Um, but yeah. yeah. That kind of woody character. Um, yep. So have you ever sponsored um, a, 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 a trial hop? Have you ever, you know, gone out there? I mean, one of the, one of my favorite things to do, and I'm sure it is for you is, is to pull Jason away from his crazy busy day and, and have him go out there and, and, you know, you just kind of crushing cones and checking new stuff out. And, you know, we, we ended up um, sponsoring a hop called HBC 637 and it's kind of gone through its stages of, uh, of different, you know, when when it's going to get picked and you know the root stock didn't take the first year and anyway it's 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 been a nice hop for us but maybe maybe hasn't met all of our expectations is there have you guys ever um invested in any trial fields or or um something like that we haven't um just given our size we're we're not quite to the point where it's really easy to justify like sponsoring a full acre or something like that i think you know we've talked to some other breweries about potentially going in, you know, on a, on a hop and, and working on that. I think that uh, is something that we definitely have an interest in moving forward. You know, we want to continue to support the, uh, you know, the growing region as much as possible. I think one of the things that it's one of the big reasons we really like to be very active in the hop quality group uh, with the, with the breeding program, the public breeding program that we're working on within that um, because it is kind of like we're sponsoring these hops in a, in a sure. way that, and, and what I like about it too, is we're sponsoring the hops and that they're going to be, you know, publicly accessible for growers, which is, which is really cool. Very good. Okay. I got one more question for you. I saw on your website, um, you guys uh, work with a company called Eldon James Corporation. This is a hundred percent PVC free draft system. Can you tell me a little bit about that draft system, how you came about, um, you know, and uh, tell me about it. Yeah, so so um, we got hooked up with them very early on. Um, actually, I think it was when we were about a year in. Um, there was a Master Brewers uh, conference down here in Austin, and uh, they were given a presentation, and I think they happened to come into our pub, and they were like, um, uh, "They're promoting this. It's you know, it's an oxygen barrier uh, beverage tubing for your draft wall. It's." It's uh, antimicrobial, so I think it's got this special lining that's um, you know resistive to any kind of microbial growth. So and really, the whole goal is obviously to have beer fresher and taste more accurate on a tap wall. Um, and back then, that was uh, really not. I mean, you know, everybody's been in a bar and had a beer that doesn't taste like it should because the tap wall is not maintained or they're using old lines or anything. And so, um, yeah, we ended up just hooking up with this this company and. Um, I think they've since sold the technology to uh, Micromatic, but they're the original, they're pharmaceutical um, okay. specifically. And they, uh, I don't think their intention at the time was to get involved uh, necessarily in brewing, but they found it as a good outlet. And, um, so yeah, we worked with them. They were very, very generous to us. They kind of used us as like a little pilot uh, brewery for um, some of the early years. And then, um, you know, they would send a lot of people in down to Austin and, 
have them come and check out our, our draft system. And that was when we just had two locations, but um, yeah, it was a, kind of a, a big effort for us to, um, you know, really make sure that we're serving a high quality beer. When we opened, we, we started with uh, guest taps as well. Um, and so we we're pouring a lot of different beers on, you know, part of our wall. And so we're constantly switching styles. And um, that was a huge appeal to us is, you know, you weren't getting carryover from one beer to the other, uh, you know, after cleaning, which was, is often the case with with uh, you know more inferior type draft tubing. Excellent. That's uh, sounds like a really cool product. So away from brewing and and um, what does Joe do for fun? <laughs> um, man, I got uh, probably too many hobbies. I try to keep up with all of them. But uh, um, yeah, living here in Austin, you know, it's hot, so we we try to spend a lot of time on the lake, do a lot of paddle boarding, and um getting out I, I i like to slalom ski a lot so um try to spend a lot of time on the water um also picked up a fairly new hobby in the last couple of years i've always been very into motorcycles uh, but i got into trials riding and uh, we have a pretty dedicated community down here trials riders so um i spend a lot of time out there uh, hopping around on rocks and and having a good time doing that um and then uh my wife and i undertook the uh the um building out a sprinter van during the pandemic. So we've, uh, we've always uh, really enjoyed camping and traveling and we got two big dogs. And so we wanted to, you know, build something that we could travel around. And uh, she's from Colorado. I'm from Minnesota. So we spend a lot of time back uh, in Colorado whenever we can and, and then driving up to see my family in Minnesota. So it's been great. It's been a really fun project. It gets me kind of scratches some of that DIY itch uh, that we all have as brewers. And um, yeah, it's fun to get out and, you know, travel and, uh, be able to, to bring the, the dogs with us, which uh, my dogs are named Zots and Perla after hops, of course. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay. So when I come to visit in Austin, I told you I was a barbecue guy. Where, where would I go to get the best barbecue in Boston and in, in, in Austin? And well, I know that's a tough question. Yeah. You know, I'm probably gonna, for every one person I mentioned, I'm going to offend someone else, but uh, you know, Franklin's, I think, is still the king down here. Um, okay. He's he's there's something that he does that just can't be replicated. Um, so in Austin, you know, if you got the if you come down, we'll go hang out in, in the line, wait for it, you know, get there in the morning. We'll drink some beer. We'll have some barbecue. It's it's a it's a good time. And his barbecue is phenomenal. Um, there's another place that I would that uh, down in San Antonio. We're also in the San Antonio market. So I spent some time down there but it's kind of the new upstart. And I think they're going to, you're going to start hearing their name a lot. And it's Reese bros down in San Antonio. So another one what to keep it? an eye out of Reese. Which, which one is that? Okay. Um, keep an eye out for that. I think you're going to hear that name a lot in, in the coming years. They're, they're doing some, some pretty magical stuff with brisket. Awesome. What about burnt bean? Have you ever been to burnt bean? I have not been to burnt bean. Okay. I know they're, they're a James Beard uh, nomination okay. and, um i've i've heard amazing things he was he was a competitive cook um and what was another one that i wanted to go to valentino's i think uh valentino's is awesome yeah that's it's a, just uh, incredible valentino's is great too because i think it really it blends uh it, it's i think it's very austin you know it's been here for a long time and it's outside kind of, of yeah yep right wow wonderful <laughs> you're spoiled man 
Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> you got been, great some, lager some beer and great barbecue. <laughs> I'm so envious, you know. <laughs> anyway, I think that's going to wrap it up, man. Thanks, Joe. What a great conversation. Um, Joe will be back um, on the next episode of this show as a host, um, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. Uh, that'll air in two weeks, so make sure to tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. I'm Matt Cole. Thank you for listening to Brewer to Brewer podcast. Have a wonderful day. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com.